This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. And let's just hear what God has to say to us this evening. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God who speaks to his, his people. Father, you have something to say to us that, Lord, it will reveal your glory, that will reveal your presence, that will reveal your character to us tonight, that will cause our spirits and our hearts and our minds to be stirred and to bring praise to our mouths and to our lips, to give you glory and to give you honor. Father, be among us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear what your Spirit is saying, and you take all the glory and the honor in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read a few verses. I just want to read one verse from Romans chapter 1 first. And just preparation for the verses we'll read. I just want to read chapter, uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, and then we'll come to 3, um, starting at 21. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And verse 21 of chapter, 20, or of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the book of Romans is a when you start to get into it, it is a real book full of the meat of the Word of God. And it can be quite an intimidating book at times because there's such big subjects in it. And commentators and scholars over the years have debated it back and forward. But Romans has been a book that has been very influential in the gospel and for the gospel. You know, I think of just testimonials that people have given for Romans. And we think of Luther, who celebrated the 500, 500th anniversary of the Reformation last year. And it was the, the verse 
in chapter, or sorry, chapter 1 that we just read, the just shall live by faith that changed his life and it brought about the birth of the Reformation. And that's why we're here today. If the Reformation hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. Think of John Wesley, who was saved when he went into a church and actually someone was reading the preface to Luther's commentary in Romans. And Wesley felt the warmth of the Spirit of God change his heart there and then, and he was born again. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years on his commentary for the Romans. 13 years every Friday night. I don't know how I got so many sermons, but 13 years with rarely a break. Robert Haldane was an old preacher, Scottish preacher, and he got so, he wrote a commentary in Romans and taught Romans to his students on the continent. And many of those students went on to be used mightily by God in revivals throughout the land. And we think of Augustine or Augustine. <coughs> Augustine heard a child take up the words and say, take up and read. And he took up the Bible that was beside him. And it was Romans chapter 13. He read a number of verses and he was born again in those moments. There's powerful words in the whole Bible, but Romans is worth paying attention to. Romans tells us that there are a number of categories in the world. We look at the world today and we see categories. We see the northern hemisphere. We see the southern hemisphere. We see the continents, seven continents. We see this further broken down into countries, to states, to provinces, to cities, to towns, to families. It's continually broken down into color, rich, poor, status, upper class, middle class, lower class, and broken down in religious statuses as well. But I want to suggest to you tonight that the Bible, God only recognizes two categories on the face of the earth. Those who are righteous, and those who are unrighteous. Those that are at peace with Christ and those that are at war with Christ. Those destined for heaven and those destined for hell. The Bible only recognizes two categories of people. And that's why we read Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In those two verses, we see clearly the two categories, the unrighteous and the righteous. And we went on to read. Now, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 are a follow-on from chapters, or verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It's as if Paul um, spoke 16 and 17. 
And then he goes on in 21 to 26 to explain what he means and on into the rest of the book. Now you would expect Paul when he has written, or spoken 16 and 17 of chapter 1 to go on and explain the beauties of this gospel he has just described, the righteousness that God has given, the good news. But it's strange that he launches into verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's strange. Paul has just made a great statement about the gospel and then he talks about the wrath of God. But it's no mistake because the apostle wants to highlight the gospel and for us and for this world to highlight the gospel we need to know the predicament that the whole world is in. From chapter 1 18 to 425 righteousness and being right with God and justification is mentioned 24 times. The words faith or believe or the other uh, words that can be used to denote this are used 27 times. But between chapter 1, 18 to chapter 3, 20, it's only used six times. Righteousness and faith is only used six times. But there's another set of words that dominate 118 to 320. And it's the word sin. It's used seven times. The word wrath is used five times. And the word judgment is used 11 times. Paul's trying to show something here. In 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In 2.5, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In 3.5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. These verses that we've concentrated on and what is in between show the state that man is in. Now, there's many in the church have a problem with God's wrath. They have a problem with an angry God. And when Paul was writing this and the commentators today, they look at this that Paul was, Paul was talking about the Greek gods and they were uncomfortable with God being placed alongside the Greek gods. Because the nature of the Greek gods, their myths, their legends, they're not real gods, you know that. But the nature of them, that they were vindictive. It depended on what sort of mood they were in, whether they were going to take it out on the people. But God's not like that. 
The word used for wrath here is called orger, orgy, should I say, orgy, and it means to swell, and it means to build up. And what it denotes that the anger of God grows. It's not a God, he's not a God who just acts on impulse, who slices out to strike. Maybe when you were younger, and when I was younger as well, I always remember you had a, uh, a view of God that if you'd done something wrong, he was there with a big stick to beat you. This is not the God of the Bible. Now, there's many stories you read, and you'll see God's anger poured out. But it's righteous anger, and an anger that is deserved, and a wrath that is deserved. Look at 118 again. It's a just anger. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why is God angry? Because he is angry at ungodliness. He hates it. He hates it. And who is he angry at? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's angry at all mankind. And this is what Paul's trying to say to the Romans. It brings the Romans and the Gentiles onto an even playing field that all are under God's wrath. He's angry. And he's angry at men. All men. What is ungodliness? Is it the things we do? Is it the, when we don't do something right? Is it when we break the law? Yes, it's all of that. But the Romans here tells us, Paul tells us here in Romans that it's more than that. What truly is ungodliness? We read 18, but what does 19 say? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. I want to suggest to you there is the key to what ungodliness is. It is not giving God the worship, the praise, fully what he deserves. That's true ungodliness and true unrighteousness. And the things we do when we don't obey laws is an outworking of that nature that is within us. Paul goes on to speak in chapter 2, or verse 1 to chapter 3, 8. He speaks to the Jew and in 118 to 32, he speaks to the Gentile. Haven't time to read that, but it talks about the sins of the Gentiles and then it talks about the sins of the Jew. And he lumps them together because the Jews thought, Jews, because they had the word of God, they had the law of God, they thought they were right with God. And the Gentiles, because they didn't listen to their conscience, because the law was written on their conscience on the inside, they rejected that. And Paul's saying you're both the same. He sums it up in three chapter nine, or three chapter three, verse nine. 
Here's the sum up of Paul for the Jew, for the Gentile, for everyone in all times. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on to describe some of the stuff. But verse 20 is the total sum up of it all. For by the works of the law, listen, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being. And that one statement, that one verse, Paul undermines every reason we can give that why we should be allowed to go to heaven and be God's people. He undermines it. He chops the legs right off it. The self-righteous, well, I'm good enough. Paul says, no, you're not. We can come up with excuse, the good outweighs the bad. Paul says, no, that doesn't work. There are many ways to heaven. No, there isn't. There's one. And every other excuse that mankind can throw up to God and say, God, I'm good enough. Paul says, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law does not give us righteousness. The keeping of God's law does not give us righteousness. God's law shows us that we are unrighteous because it shows us God's standard and we can't reach it. What sort of gospel is this? And before we move on to the good news of the gospel, there's a problem with a lot of evangelism today because it wants to take the wrath of God out of the equation. It wants to take it away because it's not palatable. People won't come to church. People won't listen to the gospel when you start talking about that God is angry. But church, I want to say to you tonight, Romans tells us very differently. It's what they need to hear. Paul didn't waste almost three chapters saying to the Jew, you can't do it. To the Greek, you can't do it. To the rest of mankind, you can't do it. I remember when I was saved, and I remember hearing the gospel, and I knew where I stood before God. And did it frighten me? Yes, it did. But it's what I needed to hear. I've been in various places over the years, and I look back in hindsight, 
and I see invitations made to come to Christ and nothing has been said about the state that you're in before God. It's God loves you. If you want to know Jesus, come to the front, put your hand up. I'm not saying any of that's wrong. But people don't know where they stand before God. Don't know where they stand before God because they haven't been told. One commentator puts it, if a wicked man seems to have peace at death, it is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. There's people dying there today and they don't know that they're in danger. I was reading this week, and you've maybe seen it too, about the, the scientist, 104 years of age, gone to Switzerland, I think it was, to have his life euthanized. No fear, no danger, no awareness. Where is he tonight? I'll let you decide. But he's under the wrath of God like the rest of mankind. What if Paul had just stopped at verse 20? What if he had stopped at verse 20? Then the world has no hope. We have no hope. Every man, woman, and child in the face of the earth through time and eternity has no hope. And this is what Paul wants to get across here. It stops us boasting. It stops us saying we're good enough. It stops the self-righteousness. It stops our mouths in their tracks by proclaiming how good we are. But he didn't stop here. He didn't stop What does he say? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Paul said all of the rest of it to come right to this point. But now, but now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, these, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words. But now, but now, because of everything else he said before, these words are highlighted. These words you can't avoid because they give hope. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Everything has led up to these next statements. He introduces a new era to mankind, a new possibility for mankind. Two of the most soothing words to those who see their state before God. Commentators say these two words are at the center and they are the heart. 
and about this passage that we just read, 21 to 26, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And I think that's true. Because the problem was sin, but the cure is the righteousness of God. There is a cure. There is a cure. And it is the righteousness of God. It's God's. And that's what we need to realize first of all. The righteousness of God. It doesn't come from us. It comes from him. It comes from another world. It comes from another world. It comes and it's manifested apart from the law. Look at the contrast. The righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. The law connects to verse 20. The righteousness of God takes us forward into 21 and onwards. The past is dealt with and there is a future. And that future lies in the righteousness of God. Of God. Whose is it? It's God's. It's God's righteousness. It's God's. What does that mean? Man can't save himself. It has to come from God. It comes from another world. It's pure, it's holy, and it's perfect. And it is the only righteousness that we can avail of that God will say, innocent, not guilty, is the righteousness of God. And it's a righteousness that cannot be challenged. We haven't time to read it, but you go on into Romans 8. And it talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God. The verse just before that says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. So no one can bring a challenge and say you're not good enough. Because we just say, not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. That's whose righteousness we stand in. That's the righteousness that is imputed to us. You are just because it is God who justifies. His righteousness is imparted to us. That's why Martin Luther said it's the just who live by faith because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's a problem. There's a cure. And then there's the means by which the Father achieved it. Verse 24. I love this verse. And it says... And are, and are justified by his grace. Sorry, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Should have read 24. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's his righteousness. But do you see also whom God put forward as a propitiation? It's his way. It's his righteousness and it's his way. Again, Paul shuts the door in the face of anyone who can say, I'm good enough. It's God's righteousness and it's God's way. Beautiful verse. Whom God put forward as a propitiation because it's for the glory of his name. We can't boast. Look at ourselves. Really, when we look at ourselves, even at our best, on our best day, we're still failures. There's nothing to boast about. The word propitiation is a word that scholars argue over. And it's an important argument to be won. There's two words. Maybe your Bible uses the word expiation. But here, I'm reading the SV, it says propitiation. I think the King James uses propitiation as well. And let me just give you a simple definition. Expiation means the cleansing of sin, where God cancels and cleanses from sin. But propitiation means the placating of wrath. The offering turns away wrath. Now, people argue that God's wrath was not personal. But the verses we read in 2.5, in 1.18, in 2.8, and 3.5, tell us that God's wrath is personal. Let me just read one of them for you. 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That sounds personal to me. And what some scholars try to do is argue away that God wouldn't take that wrath out on his son. There's there's guys that have written books and they've called this, you've maybe heard the argument, cosmic child abuse. Do you know the problem there? They don't understand the seriousness of sin. God is repulsed by sin. He hates it. It can have no part in his nature. God had to pour out his wrath. But thank God he put forth a propitiation who was willing and able to pay the price so you and I didn't have to. Why is it important? We know God is a God of love. Would the expiation rule fit? Yes. But God is also a God of justice. Now the problem sometimes with, with evangelism is that we let God's love trump God's justice. 
Now, if God's love, God trumps God's justice, then God is not fully just. <coughs> His nature is just, and He must punish sin. But He also loves, and He desires to save. How does He do it? The, the doctrine that's called it's called penal substitution where someone substitutes, takes our place, and he takes the price and the penalty. We talked about at the, the communion table this morning about the sacrificial lamb in Exodus. And the wrath was poured out, and the wrath was the lamb was slain. When we come to the New Testament, and we see Jesus put forward as the sacrificial lamb. And he took the wrath. He took our price. He became sin who knew no sin. And it was poured out on him. It's important because it's the character of God at stake. The character of God is the motivation. He is a loving God, yes, but he is also a just God. And he can't let his justice go at the expense of his love, and he can't let his love go at the expense of his justice. He didn't want to do that. So he sent another to take the price for us. It's the only doctrine. Penal substitution is the only doctrine that deals with God's attributes of love and justice without compromising one at the expense of the other. God's love does not trump his justice and vice versa. They are both met in the sacrificial offering, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One writer puts it, love is a cause for the atonement. Justice of God required. Sorry, love, love is a cause for the atonement. The justice of God required that God find a way to pay the penalty for our sins. And he found a way by sending his son to die on Calvary's tree. Why do I labor this tonight? Because it shows even more the lengths Jesus Christ went to to set us free. He didn't just wash our sin away. He took the penalty for our sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. Thank God. These other scholars can turn around and say, call it cosmic child abuse. I want to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for dying in my place and taking my price. Dying in my place and setting me free from sin and death. So Paul... 
talked of the gospel. And then he talked about her state. And then he talked about the glorious gospel. The good news that there is a righteousness that we can avail of because of what Christ has done. And we receive it by faith. We receive it by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ in verse 22. Verse 24, in Christ. Verse 25, by faith. And verse 26, has, those that has faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in, in Christ, by faith, has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, what is that faith? You see no hope in yourself. You see no hope in others. You see no hope in things. Your own good works, there's no hope. Your own good deeds, there's no hope. No others, good deeds and good works, there's no hope. Only Christ. The work that he done and put in our faith in him, that's real faith. In and of yourself and all mankind, we are hopeless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, but now, there is a righteousness from God because God put forward a sacrifice that with faith in his finished work, we can claim we are justified by faith. Where does that leave us? I know most of you in here. But I want to challenge you with that tonight. Is that the gospel that you're trusting in? Is that the gospel where you see no hope? Is this the Christ that you trust in? Or is there a little bit of you in it? If you know the Lord tonight, there's none of you in it. Maybe over these number of years, maybe you just haven't fully understood that. And you've been resting that'll do my best here and keep, try my best to keep. That doesn't mean that we live whatever way we want. That's another sermon. We don't. But when it comes to what brings righteousness into our lives, is that what you're trusting in? God's wrath was upon us. But now God has given a righteousness apart from the law. And he has bought that and purchased that himself by sending his son to die on the tree. I want to encourage us tonight, if you are born again tonight, let's rejoice in this afresh. Maybe you're on the fence. I want to challenge you to get off that fence and put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've never put your faith in him. You stand under the wrath of God. 
but there is hope. But that hope is in God's righteousness and in God's way. All mankind, all human being, no human being will be justified, but there is a righteousness apart from the law, and it comes through him. I want to challenge you with that tonight just by way of application. And just the challenges again in our evangelism. And this doesn't mean that we run out and we tell everybody, oh, you're, oh, you're going to hell. All guns blazing. No. We're to speak in love. Because we care. Because we care for souls. And we, but we tell them the truth in love. That's head nothing. All mankind lies under the curse and the wrath of God and only the righteousness of God apart from the law matters. So when we're evangelizing, let's not keep nothing back. Charles Spurgeon says, shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull, lull them into soft slumbers from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. That, you know, there's, there's elements of that message tonight that maybe you, you, that have challenged you tonight. And I'm glad it challenges you. Because it means then there's hope if it challenges you. But for me, and for many others in this room, it makes me rejoice because my righteousness is not my own. It's Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice tonight. Us that know you in this room, we can rejoice tonight. Not through anything of ourselves, not through any merit of ourselves, but we rejoice in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. The Lord, that you have justified us. The Lord, that no one can bring a charge against us because it is you that has justified us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for so great salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we were under wrath, Lord, and you came and you took our wrath. You took that righteous anger that you, you, you would have poured out upon us and you saved us because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I would pray for your people in this room tonight and maybe those who have maybe been on the fence or, or don't even know you, Lord. The Lord, that they would see the seriousness of the state that they're in. That it is a just anger and a just wrath. But Lord, you, you put out righteousness. The righteousness of God 
your righteousness, your way. Lord, I would ask tonight by your Holy Spirit that you would minister to each heart here tonight. And Lord, as we leave this building, we give you the glory. We give you the honor in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.